You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, there are many, many, many stories that have been told and retold throughout the history of the world. Some of these stories are unique. Most of them are not. They may have different names of characters or take place in different locations or even different time periods, but when you take all of these stories and you boil them down to their major components, you begin to notice, hey, I've seen this story before. It was dressed up differently, it looked a little different, but I've seen this story and I know how this story ends. From the story of the brave hero against the villain and the towering fortress for the damsel in distress, the story of the unknown coach uh, with the team of nobodies against the team of somebodies for the championship game. We know these stories, right? We've seen them before and we know, we know how these stories are bound to end. Jesus, in the message he's speaking today to the church in Pergamum, is pointing this out. He's describing to Pergamum their current situation looking at all their major components. And he's showing how, at least so far in first century AD, their story matches one that we have already seen. One that took place in 13th century BC, involving Old Testament Israel and a man named Balaam. Jesus is calling the church of Pergamum to look back at this former story and take note. And I believe he's calling us, Cities Church, to do the same today. So let's just pray one more time for grace as we do this. Lord, open our eyes to your word today. Help us to receive this word well. Change us to be more like your son. Help us to pursue him out of joy. Give us grace today, we pray. Amen. So as I said, we're looking back to 13th century BC to a story that's captured in your Bible in Numbers chapters 20 through, uh, 22 through 25. And here we find God's people, the Israelites, and they've been wandering through the desert, bound for the promised land, and at this point, they're in the land of Moab. The king of Moab sees this people coming, sees this mighty people on the horizon, and immediately he, he begins to quake with fear because he knows these people just conquered the Amorites. And before that, they conquered the Egyptians. So the king of Moab is shaking, thinking they're here to destroy me. So he acts offensively. King Balak, out of fear, sends for the man Balaam. And Balaam is kind of like a sorcerer for hire. His job is to curse the Israelites. And if he's successful, Balaam gets paid. But Balaam can't do it. Three times over, he goes to curse these people, and God will not let him do it. He blesses them instead. 
In chapters 22 through 23 through 24 of Numbers, this story just reverberates with victory. Until we get to chapter 25. And the very first thing we see in chapter 25, verse 1, is this. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. These are the Israelites. The Israelites who their God just saved them out of Egypt. The Israelites who are called to worship the only God, Yahweh, and no one else. And all of a sudden we see them in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, and they're bowing down to these false gods. And they're engaged in wholesale sexual immorality. And the question is, how did that happen? Chapters 22, 23, 24, we got victory here. God won't let Balaam curse these people. 25 verse 1, what happened? Well, Numbers 31 actually tells us. If you look at verse 16, it says that on Balaam's advice, following these three failed cursing attempts, on Balaam's advice, so it's all Balaam's game plan here, the women of Moab caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. In other words, Balaam, after failing to curse these people, came up with another way around. He came up with another uh, plan, and he approached King Balak. And Balaam said, we cannot kill these people with the sword, but we can kill them with seduction. These people cannot be cursed, but they can be tempted. Send in your women to seduce them into sin. In this way, King Balak, you will break this people. So that's the storyline of the people of Israel, God's people in the land of Moab. And you might outline it this way. There's an initial problem. The king of Moab wants these people dead and buried. That's the problem. But Israel faces that problem head on. And they find success there. But then there's a second thing that happened. There's a moment of spiritual pollution. So there's a problem, and then there's this pollution. We read that sexual immorality and idolatry have found a home in God's camp. And with that problem, having fallen into the pollution, we take a look at the prize. From God, that was meant for this generation of Israelites, this prize was dwelling in the promised land. And for 24,000 Israelites that day, that prize was forfeited because of idolatry and sexual immorality. They forfeited the prize. Plague came into the camp, 24,000 of them dead and buried. Their eyes would not see the promised land. 
That's the story here. Problem, pollution, prize that we see in Numbers 22 through 25. And here in Revelation 2, Jesus is telling the church of Pergamum, take note. He's saying your story so far has the same exact components as their story. And your trajectory right now is heading in the same exact direction. And guess what? That story didn't end well. Pergamum, take note. That's what Jesus is saying. He's, he's saying that with the mention of Balak and Balaam. So turn to Revelation 2, verse 12, where we begin to see how these two stories connect. Following Jesus' self-introduction as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's a problem. <laughs> you, Pergamum, dwell where evil has spread its roots deep and wide. You dwell where lying tongues drown out the voices of truth. You dwell where Satan's throne is. And you might say, well, isn't in a sense all of the world where Satan has his power? I mean, the Bible, just look at it. The Bible refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. He refers to Satan as the god of this world the deceiver of this whole world. So in a sense, his deception is north, south, east, west. But for the church in Pergamum, it seems, Jesus, uh, Satan's deception, Satan's lies, his throne is especially prevalent there. Why would that be? Well, the one thing that makes Pergamum unique compared to the other uh, six churches listed here in Revelation is that Pergamum at this time was the continent of Asia's official center for uh, the worship of Caesar. Emperor worship. Taking Caesar, a mere man, who happened to rule over all of Rome, and bowing down to him as if he were a god. That's what Pergamum was known for. People saw Pergamum in that way. That's where this happens. That's where Caesar is called God. Viewing Caesar as God in Pergamum and then acting accordingly would have been inevitable. Therefore, failure to view him as a God and act accordingly would be most likely fatal. But though that's a problem, that's not actually the problem for this church. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, of my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You held fast. The church of Pergamum had faced this problem faithfully. They had seen the sword of Rome raised high into the air. They had watched as the sword of Rome came crashing down on the neck of their beloved brother Antipas. And yet they held firm. They held fast to the name of Jesus. So the story 
It rings with victory. But here's where the connection begins to come in. Here's where Jesus is making his point. Caesar tried to break you with the sword, and Caesar was unable. King Balak tried the same thing. He also was unable. But he found another way around. And it seems the false teachers in and around the city of Pergamum are taking note and following through with that strategy. They noticed it was not the sword that killed the 24,000. It was seduction. So Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who holds the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. You see that? There's a, there's a teaching here. It's the teaching of Balaam. Not mere actions. It's teaching. It has content. It has ideas. Ideas that if heard and ideas that if followed leads one into this type of depravity. If someone were to follow the bait of Balaam and take a bite, hook, line, and sinker and fall in, the next thing that they would know, they are idolaters. And note, just for a moment here, the reference some there among you, you have some there among you who are falling into this, that doesn't have its focus on the non-Christians in Pergamum. They're not the ones in view here. Jesus is not saying the issue is your non-Christian neighbor who worships another god. Jesus is not saying the issue is your non-Christian co-worker who sleeps around. That's not the issue. That's not the focus. What he's saying, well, we'll get to in a moment, but just consider for a moment, we've seen this elsewhere as well. We've seen Paul talk about this in 1 Corinthians. And he said that it's a given that the church will live in and amongst uh, unfaithful people, non-Christian people. And we aren't to seek to remove ourselves from that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world, since then you would need to go out of the world. So the problem in Pergamum is not the non-Christians. What is the issue? Where is this spiritual pollution coming from? Again, if we look at 1 Corinthians, it's insightful. Paul says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. The issue for the church in Corinth and the issue for the church in Pergamum is one and the same. It's spiritual pollution from within. Sexual immorality and idolatry, and idolatry were finding a home in the members of the church of Pergamum. Not mere visitors, like the actual members. The people who had their names on the church roster. The people who we would see in Pergamum and others would say, Hey brother, hey sister. Full-fledged members who were bearing the name of Jesus while they were snuggling up next to Balaam. 
And Jesus is trying to wake them up to this, saying, don't you remember what's already happened? Don't you remember the 24,000? The same deadly disease from so many years ago, Pergamum, has found a home in some of you. You have some there. And you know how that story ends. So what was the church of Pergamum to do about it? I mean, that's the, that's the problem, but what are they supposed to do? Same thing as the church of Corinth was supposed to do. Not associate with them. Not even eat with such a one. Only Jesus says it here. All of that with one weighty word. Repent. Church of Pergamum, you have this spiritual pollution in and among you. Therefore, repent. Make it known out of hearts of love for these people. Out of desire for these people's eternal good. Go to them and make it known to them that they are spiritually out of bounds. That the way that they are living, the way that they are thinking is not in accord with Jesus. Go to them as an individual. If they repent, you've gained your brother. If not, go to them in a group. If they repent, you've gained your brother. If not, bring it to the whole church. And if they will not listen to the voice of their whole church family, their family that says, we love you, if they won't listen to that voice, you've got to tell them, I don't think you're in the family. Now, if you're not a Christian today or uh, you are a Christian but you've never been at a church where they've done something like this, it's called church discipline, uh, this whole thing might sound somewhat heartless to you. You're kicking them out, Right? The goal is not these people's harm. It's these people's healing. The goal here in the words of 1 Corinthians 5 is to hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit will be saved. Not harm, but healing. Love-driven healing. That's the goal. And Jesus says that in our text today. So, the goal here is that these people in Pergamum, as we repent, would be saved. Right now they are not heading toward being saved, but they are heading toward being damned. Jesus says in our text that he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. How does that fit into this? We see in verse 16 where the connection lies. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is language of judgment. The same language that we see in Revelation 19 where Jesus, the one who is called faithful and true, at the very end of time comes in righteousness to judge and make war. Verse 15 says, from his mouth comes this sharp two-edged sword with which to strike down the nations. That's what the sword is for. 
It's for judgment. And knowing that, we repent of how indifferent we have been toward our friends who are right now heading in that direction. We've watched them walk in that way. We've heard them talk in that way. And we know where all of that is leading. And we've just stood by. We are to repent of that. The church of Pergamum was to repent of that. So, if we repent for the church of Pergamum, for churches who would follow them, if we are faithful to Jesus' word here, if we respond in obedience to this, and if we repent, there is a prize which Jesus promises us. So, the prize is described in verse 17. What exactly its description is pointing to, at least at first, is somewhat unclear. I'll read it for you. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. A strange language. But remember our context. Remember where we've been. Think about what's been talked about so far. Jesus has been pointing Pergamum. Go back. Look back. Remember the people in the wilderness. That's our context. So if we take the hidden manna and overlay it on that context, stuff starts to click a little bit. During those 40 years of desert wanderings, God fed his people with manna. Some of that manna, as Jewish tradition goes, had been stored or hidden in the Ark of the Temple and placed in the tabernacle. So the focus, at least for starters, is, okay, we're thinking of the tabernacle when we hear hidden manna. And here, the white stone begins to start making some sense as well when we think about the tabernacle. After all, only the high priest would be able to go into the tabernacle, into the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the hidden manna was hidden. So the picture is the, the high priest and the tabernacle and this intimacy, this, this in the, being in the presence of God. For the high priest, he sees this, a white stone with a name written on it. That's nothing foreign to the high priest. His very uniform would have stones with names written on it. You have one stone with six of the tribes of Israel's names written on it, placed on one shoulder. Another stone with six other names of the tribes of Israel placed on the other shoulder. So this idea of stones with names on them would be fairly familiar to the high priest. Add to that was put on his forehead. He'd have a turban and a golden plate, and on that golden plate would be written, Holy to the Lord. Jesus tells the church in Pergamum, you'll receive hidden manna and a white stone with a name written on it. I think that this is where we're headed. I think this is where we're looking. The priest in the tabernacle, a human being in the presence of God, nearness to God. When we take that back to Revelation, we see that we're on good ground here. The idea of the high priest is sprinkled throughout this book. 
Revelation 1.6. He has made us a kingdom. You and me. He has made us a kingdom. Priests to God. Revelation 5. You have ransomed the people for God. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. Revelation 20. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. They will be priests of God. You and me. We're a kingdom of priests. So as we look back, the Old Testament priests, the Old Testament tabernacle, we see the picture of nearness to God. Pergamum, if you're faithful, you have great nearness to God. We can look forward as well. We can look forward to where the whole idea of the priesthood, the whole idea of the tabernacle finds its culmination. The very end of the Bible, the very end of this very book, We read there, Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. At that moment, the angel responds, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a wedding here. A wedding which we are a part of. We, his bride, the church, wed to Christ, the groom. That's where all of this is pointing to, and a feast to celebrate. So where does this white stone fit in for Pergamum? Well, perhaps it fits into Revelation 22, verse 4, where the guests of this wedding feast, upon seeing the face of Jesus, find his very name written on their foreheads. Priests of the Old Testament tabernacle, golden plate, holy to the Lord, priests of the New Testament tabernacle. Jesus' very name on our foreheads. The hidden manna fits into this picture. I think where manna usually fits in, which is on the dinner table. (laughs) Manna is bread. Someone gives you a gift of bread, gives the church a gift of bread, what are they expecting them to do with it? You eat it, it's bread. And just as God fed the people of God in the desert with manna, so it seems God feeds his people in the age to come, the great wedding feast, with an even greater manna for the church of Pergamum, if they will be faithful. The idea is nearness to God. So brothers and sisters, we are to be a people following in the footsteps of the church of Pergamum who repent of and flee from spiritual pollution. We are to be a people who pursue spiritual fidelity to our God. We are to be a people who in life groups, who in community community groups, we ask the important questions. We say the hard things because we are jealous for one another's souls. Jealous to see one another at the table. So we ask questions about worship. Where or what are you relying on this week to make you happy, brother? What, if it were gone from your life tomorrow, would crush you, sister? What of the world's idols are you finding bubbling up in your soul this week? 
Questions about our relationship. What does your time look like when you are together with boyfriend, with girlfriend, with fiance? What's one aspect of your relationship that you feel least confident about in regard to its ability to worship God? Is there anything in your relationship right now or from long ago that you need to repent of? We ask questions about habits. When you pull out your phone, where do your fingers lead you? What does that say about your heart? What makes you angry and why is that? We ask these questions, we probe these questions, not because we're on some sort of witch hunt, but because we want to encourage one another to tune your minds and tune your hearts to your Savior and to your great prize, which you will receive if we are faithful. We are loving our brothers and sisters in this way. Pastor Jonathan, you've told me a number of occasions, be holy. A week or so ago, I got to see all the pastors of this church sit around at the round table and tell one another, exhort one another, be holy. And as I sat there experiencing that moment, I just prayed, and I'm praying now that that picture, be holy, be holy, be holy, be holy, would be a mere microcosm of our church body. Would you pray that with me now? God, we want to be holy. We want to be a people who are dead set on the prize. We want to be a people who seek purity, not only in our own selves, but in our brothers and sisters. We want the great table, the great wedding banquet to be full with people that we know and love. We want to be willing to ask the questions. We want to be willing to say things that might not be the most comfortable. We want to be willing, Lord, to love, to truly love. So give us grace to do that, we pray.